0: This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, And by Janet Prindle Seidler, Jody and John Arnhold, Cheryl and Philip Milstein family, Judy and Josh Weston, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the JPB
1: Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Recently, we've seen increased debate over how, and indeed if, we should be teaching about our nation's role in the insidious institution of slavery. Now, in his debut nonfiction book titled "How the Word Is Passed: A Reckoning with the History of Slavery in America," poet, scholar, and Atlantic Monthly Atlantic magazine, I should say, staff writer Clint Smith takes us to nine locations to, as he says, understand how each reckons with its relationship to the history of American slavery, and ultimately he asks the question: How different? might our country look if all of us fully understood what happened here? And we're delighted that Clint Smith is joining us now as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice and economic opportunity in America. Clint, welcome, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start I think at the beginning for for all authors and that is why did you feel that this book was appropriate and necessary, and why now?
0: So this, the origin of this book was that in 2017, I was watching in my hometown in New Orleans as the statues of several Confederate uh, leaders came down. Jefferson Davis, Pete de Beauregard, Robert E. Lee. And I was watching these statues come down and thinking about what it meant that I had grown up in a majority Black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And what does that mean? And what does it mean that in order to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway to get to, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy, that my parents still live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. Because the thing is, we know that symbols and names and iconography are not just symbols. They are reflective of stories that people tell. And those stories shape the Uh, narratives that that societies carry, and those narratives shape public policy, and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And so I got really interested in how slavery was memorialized, or in many ways failed to be memorialized in my own hometown, and then got kind of curious and and obsessed about what that looked like in different places across the country.
1: I imagine you looked at different ways to tell this story, different different mechanisms, if you would. And you chose to do it in, in the way I mentioned in the introduction, um, in a fashion that I saw described as you provide a map of American memory, mm. taking us to eight locations within, within this country and one location abroad. Why did you ultimately decide that's the vehicle you wanted to use? This this travel vehicle, this map of American memory.
0: So i had spent the past several years deeply engaged with the historiography of slavery, reading uh, books of history by historians like Annette Gordon-Reed, Donna Ramey Berry, Leslie Harris, Ira Berlin, David Blight, Walter Johnson, these, these historians whose text and whose scholarship has been uh, transformational for me in understanding why this country looks the way that it does today, uh, specifically in the context of slavery. And I thought about what it might mean to take the best of that scholarship, and to go to the physical places that that scholarship was in conversation with. So it's one thing to, to read about a slave cabin, and it's another thing to sort of be in the physical space of inside of that cabin. It is one thing to to hear the, the wood moan under your feet as you walk across it. It's one thing to, to see the way that light sneaks in through the, the cracks in the wood panels Um, That gives you a different sort of sensory experience, a different emotional experience. It creates a different sort of texture um, that I think can can really uh, contribute to uh, a more nuanced, deeper, uh, and, and more proximate and more intimate understanding of what slavery was. And so I wanted to go to different places across the country that told the story of slavery in different ways, ultimately to create a sort of a quilt, if you will, that represented the different iterations of how the, the memory of slavery is preserved across this nation. I do want to touch base on some of
1: these locations uh, to give the our viewers and ultimately your readers a, a better sense of where you went and what you found. Um, but I think it's important to note that this is not just about locations and destinations. And I was struck by the conversations you had with people at these locations, indeed the candor. Uh, uh, that was present in some of these conversations. Were you at all surprised by how willing many people were to talk to you and to be open and candid?
0: I don't know that I was necessarily surprised. Uh, I think it it again reflected what what many journalists will tell you is that if you approach people uh, with generosity, uh, if you approach people uh, genuinely wanting to hear what they have to say rather than approaching them, approaching them uh, through antagonism or uh, attempting to, to sort of dupe them. Um, you know, whether it be me going to Monticello or the Whitney Plantation or Angola, or spending the day with the Sun's Confederate veterans as I did at the Blandford Cemetery, one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country, I really wanted to understand. I just wanted to understand why people believed what they believed and, and what was shaping those beliefs. Uh, and even when I didn't agree with people, uh, I appreciated them being open because it gave me a clarity and it gave me an understanding about how uh, different people's sensibilities, historical sensibilities um, are, are shaped. You start off the book, as you mentioned, in New Orleans, your
1: hometown. And the, the next chapter that you talk about, and you just mentioned a moment ago, is Monticello, um, the, the, the home of Thomas Jefferson. And again, one of the, the sort of subtitled of the chapter reads Monticello, there is a difference between history and nostalgia. What do you mean by that?
0: So that's from uh, one of the guides at Monticello, a guy named David Thorson. Um, really remarkable character. Sometimes in nonfiction, you find the sort of characters that you even if you were writing a novel, you wouldn't be able to construct them in a right. way. Right. It's, it's fascinating how, how Yeah. Sometimes can be better than fiction, correct? Indeed. Indeed. Um, and, and so David was a fascinating guy and who had been leading Uh, tours at Monticello for years focused specifically on slavery and the the history of Jefferson's relationship and sort of moral inconsistency with regard to slavery and also making sure that we were focusing on the lives of enslaved people at Monticello and not simply Jefferson alone. And part of what he said is that there's, there's history and there's nostalgia and somewhere in between is memory, which is to say that how we understand his, how we understand our country and how we understand ourselves in relationship to this country and its history is shaped not simply by primary source documents and historical fact and empirical evidence, and not simply uh, the sort of emotional entanglement that we have to certain stories we have been told. Uh, but that it is something somewhere in between, and for different people, uh, that that where they end up at different ends of the spectrum uh, is shaped by part so much of the the stories that they. Have been told and I think that Monticello is a really fascinating example of a place that is always attempting to respond to new information and that in, in over the course of the past several decades has really evolved in how they have told the story of Jefferson and the enslaved families who lived there uh, going from having fervently denied that Jefferson ever had a relationship with an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings who uh, was the mother of uh, six of his children uh, four who lived into adulthood, or to now having t- a tour specifically focused on Sally Hemings and, and her family. It's interesting you say that because I probably was first in Monticello
1: maybe 30-some years ago. There was never any mention of that yeah. Yeah. at all. About 10 years or so ago, I was down, I was lecturing at the University of Virginia and went over for an afternoon. And I was I was somewhat surprised by the fact that that, that conversation, at least to some extent, had begun to be interwoven. So in the, in the, the tours, in the conversation, do you see that as perhaps a symbol of what's evolving at Monticello, more of an openness and a willingness to talk about it?
0: I absolutely think that there is uh, more of an openness to talk about it than there was. I mean, part of it is that so much of the empirical evidence is undeniable now, right? Like we have DNA evidence that Jefferson was the father of these children. Um, we have scholars like Annette Gordon-Reed, again, who have written uh, these seminal texts like the Hemings and Monticello, um, that make clear the relationship between Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, and also give us more uh, clarity about the uh, ins- multiple enslaved families who live there, the Hemingses, the Grangers, the Faucets, so that we can understand Jeff Monticello not simply as the home of Thomas Jefferson, but also, and in many ways more so, the, the home of the enslaved communities who lived there ac- across generations, because for so much of Jefferson's life, he was away in Philadelphia, in Paris, in D.C., in New York, uh, doing work on behalf of the U.S. government. And it was the enslaved families who lived there over the course of generations who cultivated that land, who built that land, who made memories on that land. Uh, and they, when we go to Monticello, uh, should be honored as much, if not more so, than, than the man himself.
1: The other location I want to talk about is New York City, right here. And I suspect that if I asked somebody about your book, if I said, here's the title of the book, and here's a, a general overview of it, um, give me of a, a, your guesses as to some of the locations that might be examined here. I would suspect that not a lot of people would say New York City. And if you look at, again, this subheading of the chapter here, it reads New York City, quote, we were the good guys, right? Why, why, is, that, why is New York City included here? And what do you mean by we were the good guys?
0: So each of the subheadings um, and the subtitles of each chapter are taken from quotes uh, from people who made statements in the chapter. And that was from uh, one of the tour guides that I spent time with in New York City, Damaris Obi, and she leads an Underground Railroad and Slavery in New York tour. And part of the reason I wanted to include New York City is because I didn't want to only include places in the South, because the South is not the only place where slavery existed. It is certainly not the only place that made slavery thrive. I mean, I think I write a lot about the economic uh, and financial infrastructure in New York City that supported the slave trade, that supported both the transatlantic slave trade and that supported the uh, the economic and political infrastructure and the social infrastructure throughout the South. So while slavery was certainly saturated throughout the South, it was not, the South was not singular um, in, in its use of slave, enslaved people and, and New York City uh, had a unique relationship in the way that it fostered and, and gave rise to uh, so much of the economic prominence of enslavement. And I think it's also important that people know that for an extended period of time, New York was the second largest slave port in the entire country after Charleston, South Carolina, and that uh, on the eve of the Civil War, on the eve of secession, the mayor of New York City, Fernando Wood, actually wanted to secede from the union because of New York's such so deeply entangled relationship with the South and and the cotton industry, and so these were things that you know. In many ways, I was learning as I was writing this book, um, and I think many people are surprised to know because, as the subtitle of the chapter says, people are always taught that the New, New York has always been this bastion of cosmopolitanism uh, and of people who were fighting uh, to end and end this abominable institution. Uh, but it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I think one of the great values in books
1: such as yours is you get readers to say, I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that. And there's so many of those instances here in the book. And I should say it is, it's a marvelous book. It's a a marvelous look at our history. It's a marvelously conversational book. And, And I mean that in the sense that you almost feel as if you're listening in to the conversations you are having to with all of these people here. So I just wanted to get that compliment in for you because it, it is so well written and, and so engaging and so thoughtful and so provocative. A couple of other locations I want to ask you about. And, and one is, as, as we are hovering near the Juneteenth date, um, you talk about Galveston in Texas. Uh, why include Galveston? In, in in this
0: selection of locations? So I wanted to go to Galveston um, because I wanted to be in a place where that represented um, a different way that the story was being told. So I went after I had spent time with the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and this was a, it almost replenished my soul in some ways uh, because I, you know, Juneteenth, the holiday, uh, was founded in Texas. And the origin story is that General Gordon Granger came to Galveston, Texas uh, on June 19th, 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed and two months after General Lee surrendered um, and effectively ended the Civil War at Appomattox in Virginia. And yet enslaved 250,000 enslaved people in Texas had not been told of their freedom. And so General Granger and the Union Army came and and made this proclamation, General Order Number Three, uh, and let enslaved people know as the declaration or the proclamation says very directly, quote, all slaves are free. Uh, and the mythology of that place is that uh, it was done at a place called the Ashton Villa. Uh, and so I was there for the uh, annual um, Al Edwards uh, breakfast, which is, Al Edwards being the state legislator who pushed forward the legislation about 40 years ago that made Juneteenth a state holiday in the state of Texas. And and I was spending time with uh, the late state legislator, he's since passed, uh, and, and that community and just understanding what it meant for these descendants of people who had had their freedom prevented uh, from, had not been given access to information about their freedom for so long, to spend time with the the descendants of that community, and to think about Juneteenth as both this thing that celebrates the end of one of the most horrific things that our country has ever done, and also as a, a holiday that simultaneously mourns the fact that freedom has been, uh, been kept from uh, so many hundreds of thousands of enslaved people, not only in Texas, but across the country for, for longer than it should have been. It is one of those, as, as you said, one of those
1: celebrations, when you use the term bittersweet, that's probably understating it. You, we see it with you know, Memorial Day and others where you're celebrating something, but you have to look back at the pain that generated that celebration speaking of pain you mentioned this a couple times now and let me ask you to talk a little bit about it the visit you met me, made i'm sorry to a confederate cemetery tell us about that
0: so i went to blanford cemetery which is where the remains of 30,000 confederate soldiers are buried it is one of the largest confederate cemeteries in the country and i spent the day with the Sons confederate veterans for their memorial day celebration and as you can imagine i was a conspicuous presence at such an event um and it was, in, in, at times, certainly uh, unnerving, and I write about that in the book. Uh, and deeply unsettling, I, I, my, the fact that I was conspicuous, um, I was made constantly uh, aware of that by the, the way that people looked at me, by people taking their phones out and recording me um, as I as I stood there. And, but I did have conversations with many of these Confederate reenactors, these neo-Confederates, these people adorned in Confederate memorabilia. And part of what I learned, as I mentioned before, is that so much of, for so many people, history is not about primary source documents or empirical evidence. It is a story that they have been told by people they love and is a story that they then tell to people they love. So I think about one of the men I met named Jeff. And Jeff told me that one of the things he loved most about this cemetery is that he and his grandfather, when he was young, would go sit in this gazebo and they would watch the deer sort of move and slalom through the tombstones at, as, at dusk. Um, and his grandfather would sing him songs and tell him stories about all the men who were buried here who fought a war to keep Virginia free, who fought a war to to protect their families and their communities. And that is how Jeff understands what the Civil War was. And that is how Jeff understands who his family was and what they were fighting for. And now Jeff does the same thing with his granddaughters that he his grandfather did with him. And so there's a deep emotional resonance and entanglement in the story of history that makes it difficult for someone like Jeff to to disentangle the falsehoods and lies of the information that he has received uh, from his love and affinity for and relationship to his grandfather and also his sense of who he is in the world because that has been shaped by the people like his grandfather and those in in that community. And I think it's important to understand history as, as, as religion, as as much, much of our politics, as being an heirloom. It is something that is passed down over generations and something that does not necessarily rely on or is shaped by uh, any primary source document, but is is shaped by something that is much more tied to uh, how we understand ourselves in relation to the world and the stories we want to tell ourselves about who we are in relation to the world.
1: where I'm talking with Clint Smith, the author of the marvelous new book, How the Word is Passed a reckoning with the history of slavery in America. What then do you say to somebody, for instance, like Jeff, who you mentioned, what then do you say, or, or to somebody else who, who might be a person of, of good faith in the sense that they understand this, as I mentioned, this insidious institution and our, what our role was, it, but yet says to you, even understanding that, they don't feel it's it's productive it's helpful moving forward to have to have such a a
0: detailed focus on the past how do you answer that i think we can only understand why our country looks the way that it does today if we understand the historical phenomena that have shaped it i mean part of what i want this book to do is give the reader a sense of our proximity to this period of time, not only our physical proximity with regard to landscape, but our temporal proximity. Slavery is something that existed in this country for 250 years and has only not existed for about 150. So this institution existed for 100 years longer than it didn't. But the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture alongside the Obama family in 2016 was the daughter of an enslaved person, not the granddaughter, not the great-great-granddaughter, the daughter of someone who was born into intergenerational chattel bondage. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. And so there are moments where I think about my four-year-old son sitting on my grandfather's lap, and I imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap, and I'm reminded that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago was in fact not that long ago at all. And so the idea that this institution that was only, we're only a few generations removed from would have nothing to do with what the contemporary landscape of, of inequality looks like is both morally and intellectually disingenuous. And I hope that the, the reader through this book can feel uh, and understand our, our both our temporal and physical proximity to that period of time in, in a different and more intimate sort of way.
1: What do you think about our, our more recent, let's call it an ebb and flow in terms of awareness, and willingness to embrace this awareness and to understand our past. Uh, We saw after the tragedies in Charlottesville, the the death of George Floyd, we seem to see a a fairly unified movement saying, all right, this is important that we know about this in order for us to to deal with this. And now in the last year or so, we're seeing a backlash. We're seeing a pushback. We're seeing governments stepping in, governmental agencies or certain legislators stepping in and saying, well, we shouldn't even be teaching this in this fashion because of its, as they say, destructive quality. What do you think about that ebb and flow? Are we basically going to be sentenced to sort of living with this ebb and flow for the rest of our lives? Or do you see any change in that pattern?
0: I think that we. this is the story of of race in this country. Um, This is the story of so many things in this country in which there is a a relative amount of progress made and then there is a violent, intense, uh, social and cultural and political pushback to some, so much of that progress. And so what I think is undeniably true is that our country has gained a more sophisticated, or, or certain parts of our country have gained a more sophisticated framework, language and lexicon with which to understand racism, not just as an interpersonal phenomenon, but as a historic one, as a structural one, as a systemic one. Uh the thing I tell people is that you know, in, in, uh, 10 years ago, if you would ask somebody what redlining was, they would have said, like, is that a makeup? Like, is that a type of lipstick? Um, but, but we are now in a place where more people understand redlining as a state sanctioned mechanism by which uh, black families were prevented from having access to home loans and buying homes in certain neighborhoods and thus accumulating so much of the wealth that we know homes to, to be um, or to generate. And, and I think having a more, that is an, uh, an example of the way that I think more people in this country understand the mechanisms by which racism has operated throughout our history so that we more effectively understand that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not simply because of the people in those communities, but it is because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation.
1: There are so many other destinations, and I wish I had the time to talk with you about them, but uh, we'll let our, our folks, our viewers here, go get the book and read about them because they, they are so compelling. You, um, you talk about Angola, the Louisiana State Prison there, um, and it's, its foundation, if you will, as a slave plantation. You take us that one journey abroad where you go to Senegal, and if anybody's seen the photos of this area, it's called the, the, the House of Slaves. I remember seeing it years ago. They're haunting. Um, so there are great other destinations that you go to. Um, but since we don't have the time to talk about that, I'll make sure people do. Uh, but let me, let me ask you, last question for you, right? Got about, about two minutes here. In the beginning of the book, you have a quote by Frederick Douglass. And it reads, let me make sure I get it right. The duty of today is to meet the questions that confront us with intelligence and courage. Are you optimistic that we will have both the social willpower and the political willpower to confront these issues and our past with, as Frederick Douglass said, both intelligence and courage?
0: I'm hopeful that we will. Um, I What I believe is that we are a part of, I'm a part of a lineage of people who have fought to build a better world even though they realize that they might not see the better world for themselves. Uh, and I think that we are all people who have the opportunity to to hold chisels uh, against this sort of metaphorical wall um, and chip away and chip away as much as we can at this wall of oppression, this wall of um, of, of something that attempts to, to justify the, uh, the subjugation that p- people are continuing to experience. And we can all have the opportunity to chip away at this wall. And we don't know if this wall is six inches thick or if it's 600 miles thick. But, what we do know is that the more we chip away at it, the less the people uh, who come after us have to chip away at. and And that's kind of how I think about these things. It's it, that we are working to build a better world, a more equitable more world, a more just world, not necessarily so that we can see it for them, for ourselves, but so that somebody someday will um, and and that we carry the responsibility of those who came before us um, who gave us the opportunity to to live our lives in the way that we have. And so it's our job to. To push that forward. Well, this book
1: you can consider it one of the chisels to help us moving forward and understand it. It's, as I said before, just a marvelous work. Uh, Clint Smith, once again, the book is called How the Word is Past, a Reckoning with the History of Slavery in America. Clint, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, as I said, it's a marvelous, marvelous book. And we'd love to chat with you again down the road about all these issues. So thank you so much. You be well. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at WLIW.org slash radio and on the NPR One app.